What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Temp here. Thanks for tuning in. Listen, this is the last time you will hear me say this. If you would like to win a brand new Fitbit or Kindle Fire, be sure to subscribe to my new podcast called The Week on Earth. Take a screenshot of your subscription and email it to chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com. You will be entered into the giveaway, which we will announce via email and on the podcast in about a week. For those that have already entered, thank you. And we will let all of you know the results of that. Now, moving on, I'm going to make this intro quick because my kids are upstairs losing their mind and it's been a really long day. But what that doesn't do is it doesn't take away from this episode. And this is a topic in over 400 we haven't covered yet. We're talking to an expert on wealth and really about what the transfer of wealth does to people when you get money from your parents or from somebody who passes away. How does that impact you? And then this leads to a discussion about the idea of wealth and what it does to our mindset, to our drive, to our goals. So even if you're not getting a windfall, how does money impact you? This week on the show, we are talking to Kristen Keffler. And she is the author of the brand new book, The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. Kristen has a number of designations. One is the MSM. Another is the MAPP. You may have heard of those. I believe they're financial designations. She's a thought leader at the forefront of the global shift in family wealth advising, known as Wealth 3.0. As a consultant, she guides affluent and enterprising families, rising generations, and the professionals who support them 
in embracing the positive power of wealth while doing the inner work of money. In 2006, she founded her advisory firm, Illumination 360. She is the Dean of Positive Psychology for the Purposeful Planning Institute and is a faculty member with the Ultra High Net Worth Institute. She has a fascinating background and a really interesting take on money that I think all of us can use to think about our relationship with money in our lives. Hope you enjoy it. If you do, be sure to subscribe, follow, tell a friend, all that good stuff. Let's get into it with Kristen Keffler as we talk about her brand new book, The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. Enjoy. I was just listening to either a, a YouTube video or something, and it mentioned a conversation that the, Tom Brady, the quarterback, was having where he said one of his greatest concerns in life is the impact his affluence will have on his children. The fact that they might never know a large part of struggle. They have a chef and all that. And I just thought, wow, interesting that I should see this video now, right before I interview you. It's a fascinating topic. How did you come across it? This seems like a niche topic. So my my father is a was always a, a high drive CEO type when I was growing up. And there's this point that it was the uh, mid 90s, you know, IPOs were all the rage. And um, and my dad decided that he that's really what he wanted to do. He wanted to take his business building chops and do something on his, on his own. And so he did that and he remortgaged my parents' house and put all his chips on the table, um, got some external funding. And he and my oldest brother, who um, had worked with him for, for many years at this point, went and started a, a business that ultimately grew really fast. I think they had the right idea at the right time and economic wins at their back. Um, and it grew fast. And then by the time I was gradu graduating from college, my dad um, and, and the, his team had taken the company public. Within a short number of years, they sold the company. And so I think my identity story was also different in that I was coming out of college into a situation where my parents had just had a pretty significant wealth event and they were traveling a lot more and building a house in the mountains and doing, doing all this stuff. There was, there was an identity piece for me that was it was just a little confusing. Like, what is, how do you define success? How do you define fulfillment? Is it, is it good enough to just like get a job? Like we all have potential and we can all use that potential in significant ways in the world, but not everybody is destined to or driven to, or even wants to, to create financial wealth from how they think and who they are. And and my 20s were really about trying to figure out, like, how do I just become a whole me? And how, it, like, how do I find the way to finding a core identity that is just mine, that where I can understand that that wealth is a tool, but not a birthright? I want to I want to pause you there, because I think so many people, their 20s or their early adulthood is saying, how do I accumulate resources? It's really a paradigm shift to think about, like, how do I figure out who I am without resources? To an extent. Totally. I, I, I think you're spot on, Chris. I think that, you know, if you think about the this psychological challenge of the the late teens and early through mid-20s, it's really about 
about identity. It's like, who am I? It's building that identity capital of like, what are the things that I like? What are the skills that I have? How do I use those skills? And the, I think that one of the things that that access to wealth can do is it can create this buffering effect or this distorting effect where without it, it's, I think, a little easier to build identity capital because you have this like this direct feedback loop of effort in, income out, where, you know, like I'm going to go like the difference between saying like, I'm going to go spend my early 20s being a server. I want the I want the flexibility of that kind of schedule. And but your income out is is likely going to be smaller. Right. Versus if you said, you know, I'm going to go be a banker. Or I'm going to you pick some other path. Like you're always sort of t- testing the like, all right, what, what do I put in? What do I get out? What what feeds my heart? What what feeds my wallet? Um, and all of that is about getting a sense for who you are, what your priorities are, and then how how do you want to live your life? And that is what the 20s, like at, at their core, they're about learning who you are as an adult in the world and what what feels um, sort of similar and connected to your family of origin and what parts of you feel like you're charting your own course that might be separate from your family of origin. Wealth can create this complicating factor because 20-somethings in that situation, they may have access to resources they didn't earn. And so that can be this confusing, it like the the effort in and the reward out are that that equation gets messy. Um, and it can also be this like wealthy families can have kind of a gravitational pull that pulls individuals back into whatever is going on with the family because that because that wealth really can be intoxicating. That rubber band of trying to figure out like, well, how do I? If I'm still staying very connected to my family of origin, how many opportunities am I getting to identify who I am separate from? I have always said like, yeah, if my dad had a million dollars or whatever, $5 million and just said, here, you can have it, then I would just take it and my life would be easier. I, for those of us that can't understand it, um, what is missing from that mindset of like, well, I'll just take it and then it makes a lot of my troubles go away and allows me to focus on the things I enjoy. And it's that simple. Right. Well, so that's, I, I don't know exactly how old you are, Chris, but the, the Chris almost of, 40. Okay. <laughs> so as the Chris, that's almost 40, who has built a successful career based in, in your gifts and skills, right? Like you're sitting here in conversations with, with thought leaders and you're getting to use your a core strength of curiosity and and your relatability to to do what you want to do in the world. Um, that Chris today could say like, yeah, if someone, if my dad would give me five million dollars, like that would erase a lot of the the noise I have in my head about the the responsibilities I have to take care of, and then I could just go do more of this, right? But the but the Chris of at twenty two or eighteen. If he knew that, like, my dad's going to give me $5 million, how hard would you have struggled to figure out, like, I'm super curious. I love relating to people. What's a way that I could connect those th- two things and do something I'm really excited about? Not at all. I would not have done right. this. There's not a chance because it was born out of so much struggle. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And so, so 
so this is one of those things where I, you know, often, and this, this maybe gets a little too into the weeds, but it's one of the things where when I talk to parents, wealthy parents, and they'll say, well, if that's the case, then we should just delay giving our kids any resources. There may be some value to that, but it also doesn't exactly work because it's in terms of the psychology, because it's not the situation that that you're that I just described for you that I just made up for you, right? Where it's like your 20s and 30s are just about like, there's no safety net. I got to figure this out. Psychologically, when we know there's a safety net, whether we know how much it is or when it's exactly coming, there's there's always this, there's a little bit different sense of like, all right, I can I can make this work, but there will be this day in the future when I, I have that thing to to lean back on. And when there when there's family wealth, if there's not adequate preparation for it, for the for that rising generation, to, it can really be like a meteor landing in their lives. It seems like it'd be the greatest gift of all time. But if you haven't figured out who you are and how you want to be in the world and how you want to really use that resource as a tool and not as a crutch, it, like it it can just suck the suck the life right out of suck the potential right out of somebody. Yeah. I, it reminds me of a thought exercise I recently heard where somebody said, you know, imagine you woke up and you were the son of some oil baron or something and you had, you know, billions and billions of dollars. And if you just pause and think about that, they said, what would matter to you? Like if somebody gave you a, a, a Bugatti or something, right? Or a Porsche or like yeah. whatever, I, you know, I've always wanted a Lamborghini. All of a sudden it matters zero. Like there is absolutely no change in your life based on something like that. And when you go down that thought process, it goes, oh my gosh, like how would I find drive for really anything? Even now, like I enjoy working in my yard and on my yard and it's hard work and I do it almost every weekend and I sweat. But if I had enough money, I probably would hire somebody to do it even though I enjoy it and I don't know what I would do with that other time. So it just, I think in essence, where we're starting here is, and what I want to get into is like, it changes your entire perception and drive and focus, which leads to determining who you want to be. Totally. There's no doubt that having access to resources more than you need to live, it it makes a lot of things easier, right? Like, and and it reduces a lot of, mental bandwidth that you might spend trying to optimize within the constraints of the resources you have. So there's no doubt that that it makes life easier. But there's um, there's an inverted U curve in this, you know, in economics and in behavioral economics, there's this concept of the inverted U where if you start down at the lower end and you and you're at the at the intersection of the XY axis and you say, Okay, that is the point of small resources and level of ease. So like down here, it's like things are not easy and you don't have the resources to make them easier. But as you climb up the economic curve, things get easier and easier, right? When you have access to good food, secure housing, good school districts, like all of those things make life better. And you would think that that curve might just keep going up, but it doesn't. It's an inverted U where at some point it starts to table off and then it actually starts to decrease again where things, it it gets more difficult, but they're difficult in other ways. So it's not difficult like we don't have, have shelter security, but it's difficult like 
how are we supporting our kids to to build the core character traits that we know are essential for success? How do you build gritty kids who have a growth mindset, who um, who really know how to um, to be human and relate to the the humanness of the world when wealth can create a buffering effect? So um, that inverted U is at, it. It really speaks to the to the idea that there's no such thing as an unmitigated good. You can't just get more and more and more of it and whatever that it is, if it conforms to the to the inverted you and and think that that will make life better. And money is one of those things. This episode is brought to you by Hims. We don't want to admit it, but 52% of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction. But like many health problems, no one wants to talk about or take up hours of your day to deal with it. That's why you need to check out Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Hims offers an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED and serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. No insurance is needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. You can even manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hims.com/smart. That's h i m s dot com slash smart for your personalized treatment options. One last time, hymns.com slash smart. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash twist for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscriptions plan. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members on average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash smart. One more time, that's rocketmoney.com slash smart. You know what's so crazy about that is like, no matter what we do in this life, there's always a, a yin and yang. Like, it's crazy that it's striking me, right? We made this thing up which says, if you have it, you can accumulate more things and more things can often make your life easier. 
So why is it not just a straight line, you know, 45 degree line on that chart up and to the right? And the fact that it isn't just goes to show that there is nothing in this world that, as you just explained, that doesn't have another side to it. Totally. And it's, and, you know, I think money is one of those things and then by extension wealth. And I, I define those two things separately. I I define money as being, it's like the tangible concept that we can, we can actually relate to. It's like how much you pay for a coffee or, you know, when you pay your electric bill, you're using money. There's some tangibility to that wealth when accumulated money reaches a level of abstraction where it's like, yeah, I have a million dollars in the bank. Like, what does that mean? Like once you get to enough to the place where it's just like really big numbers, we can't interact with it on a human scale. We it's it's just it's just a it's just an abstraction. So when you think about money and wealth, I know I, I write about this in in the book that I just wrote. If we go back in time and we think about where did money first start, it ultimately became a stand-in for the for the trade of goods and services. Like, but the industrial revolution gate, like that's when, you know, with the mechanization of stuff, like our ability in, in the industrial revolution to produce more because of mechanization and the way that factories were built and developed, suddenly now that's when you really start to create this differentiation between people who have access to and have created money, like because they they have the ability to do so much more work through their factories. And when that starts to happen, now now we have we we're not in relationship to how the trade of money in, like is in alignment or not in alignment with our values or what we need. Suddenly it's like we just have, you know, there are people as class separation happens that have more than what they need and at the heart of it we all start to have a relatively unconscious relationship with this human-made construct that is money. And in this unconscious relationship, money becomes a stand-in for a lot of things, right? Like it becomes, on for some people, it's a stand-in for love or power. For some people, they have a very strained, difficult relationship where it's scarcity-based and they feel like they're always on the wrong end of the power continuum. Like people can be all across, psychologically speaking, across the continuum in their relationship to money, but not very many people are naturally in a very healthy place with it and a very conscious place with it. And um, I think at the heart of figuring out, finding, at the heart of finding peace with, with money and then ultimately with wealth, you have to be able to do that psychological work, that, that deep work to figure out what it is and how often is your relationship to it triggering mindsets that maybe are are driving you to behaviors that perpetuate something you don't want. Wow. Okay. So it's time. School's in session. Okay, Kristen, it's time. So a couple of things here. First, let me just uh, restate so I understand. One of the reasons we as a society probably are struggling is because we have disconnected money from its meaning, literally. It used to be a simple mechanism for trade. And then because of the Industrial Revolution and the fact that you can accumulate it and and now it's digitized and it's kind of not only ambiguous, but it's everywhere, we have lost its direct usage to an extent. And it's true. I don't see 
$5 as worth a thing. It's just $5 and there are things I need and I, without thinking, transact it to. But because of that, psychologically, we have separated what it is. And then based on our individual psyches and behaviors and all this, we attach different meanings to it. And that is where we often get into trouble and probably is the source of a lot of unhappiness. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, I think that that was that was fabulous. And I, you know, you think about how embedded this is. I mean, like on a cultural scale, we don't have a super healthy relationship with with money and wealth. And we can talk about that in a minute. But you think about like, as it drills down to the individual experience and how much of our orientation to money is we inherit from our parents' relationship to money. Like we, growing up, you watch your what your parents do and like, are they, is this something they fight about? Is this something that, you know, one person is sort of like, being sneaky to try to get stuff for the kids that the other parent doesn't want the kids to have? Or is this a way that parents use money as power to say like, well, yeah, I want you to do this. And, you know, I don't want this behavior. If you, if you choose behave the way I want, then I'll give you more, whatever it is. Don't drink until you're 21 and I'll buy you a car when you're, when you're 21. Sure. And, and then we have these embedded money scripts right? These embedded messages around what money is, and those have all these psychological hooks. So it's not just about the thing. It's just, a, it's about the thing. And like, how does someone show, how does someone in your life show love? How do you show love in your life? And is it, is it related to time and attention? Is it related to gifts? How, how clear are you in the gift giving and the gift receiving? Like all of this is, is the, has this like stickiness between money as a thing, which is just a tool. It's just a, it's a neutral and money as this, this, um, with all these like psychological barbs where it can just stick into you. And then you feel whatever you feel, because that's how you're wired to feel from, you know, what you observe growing up, who you are. I heard a quote the other day that said, the only beliefs will question are the things we think are beliefs. Meaning like you won't question the things you believe are reality or truth, even though so much of it is a belief, right? I have this belief that the sole purpose of money, the reason I want it so badly, want more of it and all this is freedom because then you can't tell me what I have to do. In your mind, along the lines of what we're talking about, is that a mindset or is that just true? Yeah, I think I, I I think it can be both. And let me t let me explain. I think that um, if you talk to most people who have created wealth, at some point they will name freedom as being one of the drivers. It's not oh, it's not always the only driver. Often it's not the only driver. But what you just said is is key for a lot of people. They say like. I wanted to be the one to call the shots and I didn't want anybody to tell me that I couldn't. And my way of getting there was to earn enough and create enough that, that I could sit back and say, I'm in charge of my time of my, where I put my attention. Um, often also what happens, and this is really very common when I talk to wealth creators is the very freedom that they seek 
they find that they don't actually feel when they get there. And it's because it can be for many reasons. They can feel the burden of wanting to like go out and do the next deal and make more, right? Even though there's plenty for them and their kids' generation and their kids' kids' generation, they it's like, oh, I figured out the formula. This is how I provide value. So I'm going to go do that. Um, and and Or it's because they've started accumulating enough stuff and all that stuff needs attention, right? The multiple houses, the boats, the cars, the staff, all of that has its own level of management that while it would seem like it would start to create freedom, many times wealth creators, when I talk to them, will say like, this is like a full-time job managing the stuff, managing the assets, making sure I'm being smart, making sure I'm educating my kids, making sure I'm not screwing up my the family that I love. Um, and one of the, the, the thing that I think is, again, the differentiator, it's like, if you haven't done the work to really know what freedom would feel like and what it would look like, and then be willing to, to know when you got there that you could say like, okay, like I'm here. How do I maintain this thing? I worked hard to create this idea of freedom. What does it look like? It You'll just keep you. We, we repeat patterns that aren't, if we haven't done the work to be, to create that, the thinking and the habits for who we want to become, we'll just keep repeating the same patterns, even if it's at the next level of success, the next level of wealth. Um, so I, the answer to your question is like, yeah, I think that that is, it would be both a reality to get there, but you probably won't enjoy it unless you do the inner work, the, that to understand like what that actually is and to know how to go lean into what you've created. Yeah. Well, and the reason I love this is because just talking about it brings to the forefront how much of my behavior, and I'm saying this because I'm sure so many people listening feel the same, is driven by the belief sets that I have around money. And, you know, I'm not judging that because you need money. Like, you, you know, you absolutely do. But I could imagine somebody saying money only buys freedom if you also have health. Do you have the same belief about that? And then it's like, well, wait, no. Okay, then. Right. So anyways, I think that's a the fascinating point is to realize it. And I know this is so much of your work and your background. You have a really cool background in like positive psychology and things like that. So I want to talk about this work. For those listening, who I think is most people, I don't know, email me if I'm wrong here, because I want to know if I'm an alien, but like who struggle with money, struggle with, I need more. I want more. When I get more, I spend it. I don't want to have to work as hard for it. Da, 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 da. Where do we start with that work? If the ultimate goal is to obviously is live a better life. That's a great question, Chris. I think, I think that money work is at its heart. And th this is something that, um, I have actually developed a process. It's, it's in, it's in my book, the myth of the silver spoon. And in the, in the book, it's really a, geared towards helping those who have been born into wealth declutter their relationship with money. But the process works regardless of whether you have been born into wealth and you have one certain set of tripwires or whether you are kind of like an average rest of us that, you know, it's like another set of tripwires and beliefs that have been built into money. And the I have developed the seven-step process. It's in the book that I think can be really 
helpful. And that there's this like, um, there's basically two phases or two buckets where there's first the inner work, like, and that's really about mindset, identity, um, behaviors, like the, what are the things that when you, you can't change a behavior unless you understand the mindset that's driving it. Right. So you can't say, I want to be more values driven in how I use my money, unless you understand what the values are that you hold dear. And if you understand and can detangle, like, what is the filter you're bringing to money? If you think money is always going to be right outside your reach, because there's just some patterning in you or something you observed growing up, that's like, that's for other people, not for me then that filter is going to continue to perpetuate despite the fact that you may want to change the outer, the outer behavior. So, so in this seven step process, there's the, the really getting to the heart of like, of the mindset that you want to like, what are the mindsets I have and what might be the more conscious freedom inducing mindsets I want to hold Mm. How does that inform my identity? Who do I think of myself as? Do I think of myself as someone that, that is always going to struggle to make it to make ends meet. And again, like successes for other people, not for me, or or do I think of myself as someone who is like charting a course that people want to be a part of what I, what I'm creating and, and that, that that success will come from my honest, heartful, authentic effort to create positive change in the world. Like that's an identity that shifts what, the role that money plays, right? So you go through the process of that inner work and then um, and then you got to look at what's my outer behaviors? How, if I say I, I want to have a healthy relationship with money, am I, am I regularly engaging with cash flow in my life? Am I finding a way to sit down and say like, yeah, I use Mint or Quicken or an Excel spreadsheet and I understand what money comes into my life and I understand what I'm spending money on. And I, am I okay with, you know, how much time or money I spend on, I don't know, gaming equipment or something, right? Like, is that in alignment with my values? If it is great, then you can say check. And if you look at your cash flow and you're like, wow, I'm spending a lot of money on things that actually aren't in alignment with my values, then that's when you have to actually look at your behavior. But you, but it takes understanding kind of your inner game and then mirroring it, looking at your outer game, your behaviors, your actions, the systems for support that you have. Um, you know, have you, are you having conversations with your spouse? Are you in alignment with how you each spend money? Do you have agreements about like, is there a threshold that you're like, yeah, under that we can each, we can each like do what we want under this threshold. But if I want to buy something that's above this other threshold, like that's when we have a conversation. Those, that's all part of the, the clearing the inner clutter first and then clearing the outer clutter. So eventually there's, it's a more frictionless system where you can be moving more energy towards bright livelihood, creating more of what you really want in the world and knowing that the money that you're earning and spending is, is fueling that in a more frictionless environment. You mentioned the mindset piece and, you know, which is, it can be anything from, it's always hard to make ends meet to one that you said that was really, really well said that I want to steal from you. But, and I was reminded of what you said about your dad. He 
had the Midas touch. Um, do where do these mindsets come from in your opinion? Like, did your dad just have this natural belief? Is that something people can build or change if they recognize the one they have isn't serving them? If I think about my dad and he's, he's still alive, I'll, I'll have to ask him what, what he thinks of this. But, um, I, if I think about my dad, I would say that there was a lot of positive elements there was a lot of positive outcomes to what drove him, but what for my dad, what really drove him was not a mindset of that was probably really healthy. It was very much a, I'm going to prove that all those people who said I wasn't going to be worth anything are wrong. And so the, the drive for him was not that he did not have a healthy mindset and ultimately got to a, a probably a healthier end, but I'm not sure really has even today fully reconciled and felt joyous in all the ways that you could feel joyous in what he created. So I, I, um, I think that that mindset is it's, it's, um, formed by, it's formed in part by nature. Like part of it is just like in our genes, like people who are grittier, people who are more optimistic in part have genes that are from their parents that have those character traits. Um, but like all things, there is also the nurture piece. There's also environment. And so the mindsets that we have, um, some of it is like hardwired in us, but we always have the opportunity to grow and change. So um, the key is having awareness about what's the operating system, because that's really what a mindset is. It's just like, I always think of it just as the like, what's the filter through which I'm taking in information about the world? And so if I have a mindset of scarcity at, at the most fundamental level, then when I look around, I'm going to see how I'm not, not enough business is coming to me. Other consultants are making more. They're other, you know, like everything I, I see is going to come through the filter of not enough. But as soon as you have that awareness of like, wow, I really am orienting myself around not enough, then you can, you can start to come up with little um, cognitive tricks to help you recognize it and say like, okay, that, that was, that's just a habit I have of not enough. So when I find myself in a situation where I am seeing the world through scarcity, I'm going to stop and I'm going to, um, you know, look around and have, you know, gratitude for three things that, that I can, that I know are abundant in my life. And that's the way that you can. So mindset is in part hardwired into us because through genes and then, and then extra sort of doubled down by what we observe in our families. And we always have the opportunity to grow and change that with conscious awareness and the choice to say, to recognize when we're seeing the world through a filter that doesn't serve us anymore. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think something for everybody to consider, what is an issue that you try to help wealthy families with the most that the rest of us probably are unaware of? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so in the, the this particular frame, one of the, the as I think about um, families, of a, a, that have significant wealth or, and often with that, um, if they're 
families that own enterprises and that enterprise is well known within the community, there's, there's not only the wealth aspect, but also the influence aspect. And so a lot of the rising gen in the families that I work with have one or both of those things that are, they will undeniably say like, that's an act, like I've had many, many privileges in my life. And I, I want to at the outset say, there's not a single one of the rising generation in the families I work with who, who ever want anybody to feel sorry for them. Right. They would, they would want to vomit at the idea of, of me or anybody else saying like, we should have pity because that's, they recognize that, that they truly have been born into a situation that they didn't pick but has given them many, many advantages. But in that context, there's also um, a, a host of pretty common tripwires that that kids who have been born into wealthy families and families of influence, um, some of those tripwires, like very often, they can't they can't even acknowledge that they're running into these tripwires. And I'll name some for you in just a minute um, because it's because no one wants to hear the problems of a rich kid, right? So. They don't even, if they are aware that they are experiencing this, which many of them aren't because they've never, there's never been a safe space to acknowledge like, wow, the, I, I really feel like I can't measure up to those, to the shoes of the person, my father, grandfather, grandmother, like the shoes of the wealth created in my family are so big. Like I, th that bar for success is so high. Like, why should I try? Like if is average or above average good enough? Um, I, I was talking to a fourth generation, um, rising gen and one of the families I work with multiple generations, the first generation made like, the, like every generation in this family is like high achieving, high driving has like created businesses and sub businesses. And, um, this 18 year old was just really struggling to, you know, just find his place. And he said, he was like, I, I think in my family, average just isn't good enough. Like I have to get into an Ivy league school. I have to, you know, he, he wanted to be an, an auto engineer. He wanted to be an engineer. And he was like, like, I can't just go do auto sports. Like I got to get into F1. If I'm going to be anybody in my family, I got to like get into the, the top layer of whatever I can do. And, and like, that is pretty crushing when you think like, just me might not be good enough. I have to go like, knock it out of the park and every family member does like that's a pretty big tripwire and i think that that's one from the outside that that often people don't see or wouldn't acknowledge that the the pressure to measure up is actually can be quite significant um and i think another one of the the tripwires that is that from the outside looks like it would be such an amazing gift but from the inside can be really pretty disorienting is, is what I call paralysis by possibility, where it's like, like, if you think back to when, you know, when you got out of college and it was like, yeah, I got to make rent, I'm going to go work. I don't know, like, I don't know what exactly I'm going to, how I'm going to make this all work, but I got to go get a job and I, and then I got to make ends meet versus a lot of the rising gen I work with where it's like, they don't have quite the same economic imperative to have to go do something right now. So they, they have what is the gift to sit back and say, well, do I want to do an internship or do I want to go back to graduate school? Um, or do I want to go try to work for the family business? Or 
they they may have that benefit, but without the sort of the drive to go make something happen, they can start to spin in that space and then not go get traction on something. And the longer that happens and and they're the longer that that timeline extends and when their peers are starting to like get traction in their lives, the more it becomes a self-fulfilling negative narrative of like, I'm got I'm not good enough. You know what's crazy about that is it's almost like the challenges that the wealthy are facing are the same challenges. It's the same coin. It's just the other side. So the 18 year old who says, you know, I can't measure up to my dad or my grandfather, or my mother, whoever it is, right, is similar to the non-wealthy 18 year old who says, I have to make something of myself, but, you know, nobody else in my family has. And, and that's why I feel like this is such a human issue. I keep coming back to this fact that uh, one of the, I think, gifts of your book and your work is to talk about the human experience for those that might not experience one aspect of it doesn't mean it's not very similar. I, I you're spot on, Chris. And I, I guess one thing, and, and I know we're, we're getting near the end of our time, but I, one thing I'll mention because you, you said, you said, you know, it's really a human experience and I, and I think you're right on. And the, one of the, one of the key psychologists in this space that are Abraham Maslow, who most people know by Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And his, his work was really about um, how, what is the path to self-actualization that humans take when humans are really doing their best work and using and tapping their potential? What, what needs to be taken care of so they can always um, move to the next level of self-actualization. And I think at the very human level, like that's what we all want, right? Self-actualization looks different for each one of us, but like that core drive, that thing in us that wants to be seen and, and appreciated for who we are and what we bring to the table that is unique to us, and then find ways to to do more of that and and use it in the world in a way that might actually make a difference. Like that is a core drive, whether it gets ignited and tended or not is like, sometimes it doesn't get tended because there's just not enough safety and resources for someone to be, have any bandwidth to pay, to pay attention to like, how do I go self-actualize, right? Like they're, they're fighting for food and security. And sometimes it's because there's not enough of the hard edges of life to have to, to rub up against, to realize that like, wow, I have more to, to give, but at the heart, it's a, it's the same drive, which is like I, we all want to know we matter, and how we go about doing that, like that's each one of our individual journeys. I love it. It's it's a really cool way of talking about a very meta and deep concept, and I think wrapping it around, like talking about it in terms of wealth and money, is something that everybody has to come to terms with in their own life. So. Again, Kristen, I really appreciate it. The book is The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. Uh, before I let you go, Kristen, are, do you have social media, a website? Where are you at that people can find you? Yeah, so um, I do have a website. It's Illumination 360. Um, and we're just in the middle of creating the book launch page, which will be linked off of that. Um, you know, honestly, I'm not a great social media Me either, person. Don't but worry. I keep 
told that I should be, yeah. but I am on LinkedIn. So, um, people can always find me there. Awesome. Well, we will link to that. And Kristen, thank you so much. This week's guest was Kristen Keffler. It was hosted as always by Chris Stemp. And the episode was edited by yours truly, John Rojas. Kristen's book, The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life, will be available on November 22nd, wherever books are sold. Let's knock out the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to this show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, go sign up for our newsletter over at smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up. And we'll see you all next episode.